It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Yeah. Many fruits, not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Speed it up and I have got no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. I fire in the fire, with the seats of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, leave the jury to down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And Bloom. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a barricade of benevolence in a belligerent world. I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. All right, and here's your coffee. And here's my coffee. Oh, thanks for my coffee. <laughs> Don't Thank drop you. it on your computer. I appreciate it, yes. Or no one will ever hear this podcast. <laughs> That's right, which, lucky them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Amy Alton, purveyor of coffee. That's right. And I, excellent medical kits, I might add. Oh, thank you very much. I have um, a master's degree in nursing. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right. And together we are the prodigious pair, the queen and the codger, (laughs) the geezer and the goddess, the courageous couple. And you know what? We are here to help you keep it together even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a vindictive viper, well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and get out the anti-venom and <laughs> listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings, no contract, or provider-patient relationship Exist nor is implied between the host and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. And that includes if you're using our new book to seek modern and standard medical care Uh whenever available. Well, we're going to talk about that in just a second. But you know what? That was a teaser. That is a teaser. That's what the (laughs) definition of a teaser. Yes, but you know what? Modern medicine is great, but when the power's down, until it's back, you got to hit the road, Jack, and somebody's got to take up the slack and keep their people healthy in times of trouble. Boy, I'm getting a little out of control with these these rhymes here. That's okay. It's cute. I like it. <laughs> well, besides, guess... no one's listening anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Just, honey, all I see in this room is you and, and me. me. So it must not and, be and anybody. And padded walls. That's right. That's a funny thing. And you know, we're actually in a padded room. That's hilarious. And I don't think the microphone is connected to the computer. 
are. <laughs> so, so we seriously are talking to the padded walls. Oh, we have audio padding all over this little this room. This little room, right? So we we really are two people in a padded room. Right. Well, so at least I have you, honey. To that's talk right, to. and not too much. Static. And I'll listen to you there, most I, of the time. And I appreciate it <laughs> when I'm Absolutely. not doing FSA HSA account receipts for folks who have purchased items, which is what I'm doing. As you're talking. Well, good for you. I yes. think that's great for people. Get something tangible out of your health savings account, your flexible savings account. And what better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated but never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster. They'll help make your workplace, your school, your church safer and they're designed by a real-life medical doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. So show the world that you've got more sense than an order of fries by comparing our kits <laughs> for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. I'll bet that you'll agree that our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Don't take our word for it. Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net, and then you'll see what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and our service. Absolutely. And I just want to add one quick thing before you move on. We do accept the FSA and HSA credit cards. If you can't use your credit card, if you use a regular card, uh, it is fine. Add to your cart if you remember. It's okay if you forget. The FSA debit cards accepted item. FSA debit cards accepted item. If you add that to your cart, which of course is a zero cost, it's a clear message to me that you need a special receipt to turn in, whether or not you use the card to make the purchase. So just add that to your cart. If you don't, you can do a couple things. You can add an order comment. Hey, I need an FSA or HSA receipt. You can say please if you like. It's okay if you don't. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> Even if you just write FSA or HSA, I will get the message. You can also email us anytime, which we're going to talk about in just a second. But I'll, I'll mention it twice, as a matter of fact. Podcast P-O-D-C-A-S-T, what you're listening to right now, podcast, at AOL.com. Send me a note. Put it in the order notes. Or add that to your cart. You'll get a special receipt. And you turn it in. And 100% of the time, it will be covered. Every item in my store is all first aid supplies, first aid education. Every single thing qualifies for use with FSA or HSA. Money's in your account. And apparently, it must be running out soon because I'm getting a ton of of orders requesting these. So I'm keeping up, folks. Don't worry. You will get your receipt. I think it's because sign-up for insurance must start mid-November. Yes. So people are nearing their renewal time. Right, so they want to get their money's worth. Yeah, because right. the, some of these, some of them do carry over. I forget which one because we don't have either of those. Um, but one of those doesn't carry over and one of them does. I'm not sure. I'm sure whoever has... The account understands what happens with their money. So if you're losing out and you want first aid, everything in our store qualifies. I promise you. There Never, you ever had a problem. There you go. Hey, you know what? We learn as much from you as you do from us. So knock out a nugget of knowledge from that noggin of yours 
and connect with the geezer and the goddess. It's so easy. It's so easy. It's so easy. And here's oh, Nurse I'm Amy. Oh, I'm mention the email again. And here's Nurse Amy In case to tell you didn't you catch how. the other email three seconds ago, it is dr, like Dr. Dr. Bones, plural, with the S, podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at AOL.com. You can also reach us at Twitter, at Prepper Show. Uh, we have some Facebook pages. We have Doom and Bloom Facebook page. We have actually a Joseph Alton. Yes. And we have yeah, a Facebook group. Friend me personally. What yeah. A Facebook group, Survival Medicine, DR Bones, and Nurse Amy. We have another Facebook page. Oh, DR Bones and Nurse Amy actually, Show. Actually, that's spelled out Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Oh, is Amy. it spelled out? Yeah. That's, that one's spelled out Dr. And these, we, we, these are years and years old, so we never really got to sort of put them together so they all make They've the same. They've been disjointed. Just just. Doom pick, and Bloom pick a is page. Doom and Bloom <laughs> is probably the best central for groups. Again, the survival medicine, right? Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Our survival medicine. The, group. the Twitter I already mentioned was Prepper Show, and of course our YouTube channel, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. And you know what? I actually did add an Instagram picture the other day. I know it's shocking, but our Instagram, if you are into Instagram, is. Doom and Bloom Medical, all one word. They don't. I don't think they even let you separate when you do uh, Instagrams. Uh-huh. Has to be all together. So it's Doom and Bloom Medical. Right. Uh, we do have a couple Pinterest too. Do you remember the names of those? Uh, Survival Medicine. Survival Medicine. And Doctor Bones and Nurse Amy. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. So consider those as well. We have all sorts of ways, as you can see, for you to connect with us and get connected with our content. That's the most important thing. We're yeah. all about education. We also have a, a current events radio show that is called American Survival Radio, and that is in a number of land-based radio stations throughout the U.S. of A. And <laughs> this show, the Survival Medicine Hour, is on KYH Radio in the great state of Utah, and we thank the folks over there for carrying this show. Uh, this is, by the way, still National Preparedness Month, a great time to... Get your plans together. If Get some supplies if you want, mm-hmm. and I would strongly recommend that. But at least have a plan together. What are you going to do if there's a wildfire in your area? What are you going to do in a case of a flood? What are you going to do in case of, gosh, an earthquake, anything? The important thing is to have a plan of action. And if you need supplies, get your supplies. They could be fire starters. They can be food. They can be water. It's basically the things that you need that would get you through the issues. Here down uh, in Florida, it would be issues relating to hurricanes for the most yes, part. Right. Things have been relatively calm since well, uh, Florence hit South Carolina. But, like South Carolina, North Carolina. Uh-huh, right, I mean, and, and that area. Tough, tough times. I haven't heard still. of anything exciting lately. Well, hopefully they're getting things cleaned up. But thirty-two people did pass away. No, I mean, no, I'm not talking about South Carolina. I mean, heading towards us here. In yes, Florida. nothing new. Nothing new. Thank goodness. Right, so oh my goodness. And also the other. I don't uh, know. Should I check the radar? Now that you <laughs> yeah, mentioned I know. That. Now, we've now been, we mentioned it. We've we been usually... stuck watching um, all sorts of stuff. All sorts of crazy stuff on the television these days. <laughs> well, in any but case, not the weather. <laughs> in, in, in any case. Um, let's see. Oh, uh, we have our upcoming book is going to be on antibiotics and bacterial diseases. 
And we do mention other diseases as well, but for the most part, it's going to be how to use antibiotics in survival-type settings, off-the-grid antibiotics that you can uh, obtain in the form of fish and bird antibiotics, right. we, things that we've written about, if you know who we are, we've written about this for many, many years. I was the first doctor to write about it uh, with regards to their potential for use in survival situations. And so finally, we're putting out a, we're putting out a book on the subject, yep, and I hope that you'll consider that it will probably it's be called hard work, right? Yes, it really <laughs> it's is. Very hard we're almost work. done with it though, and uh, <sighs> so uh, let's end that. So, we're going to call it probably Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, yes, a guide to the wise use of drugs in austere settings. Okay, so you explain what the book is now. I'm going to use Amy's explanation as to what the book right. is. Everyone knows what a PDR is if they've been paying attention to medical information. Physician's desk reference. Thank you. I was just going to say that. Uh, that is a guide to every single medication produced in the world. And it is huge. In fact, it's so big and so complicated that they have stopped printing it. Right. And it is now only available as an app. Or right. I guess you can access it right. online. It's hard to print a three thousand word uh, a page book. You know? Yeah, every and every year they were doing a new one. And what would happen, I'm sure, would, would irritate the editors is um, the second it was done and went off to the printers, I'm sure there were things that changed. New drugs, G- or new, new drugs, interactions, new right, new side effects. Maybe things pulled from yep. the market that yep. aren't available anymore. So I'm sure that just became such a, a pain in the the arse. That um, am I allowed to say that arse? Is that Only okay? with the R. Okay. <laughs> that um, watch those cords, darling. You pull the microphone, we're going to be in big trouble. I, I, we're not even connected. Okay. Got, <laughs> yes. Remember? I don't know. It looks like we are. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so if you take the PDR, which is this giant book, and then you take a infectious disease book, which if any and anyone has ever seen either a nursing or a medical school textbook for infectious disease and all the things you need to learn. First of all, there is not, I think, one comprehensive book. I know we had to buy a stack. Do you remember all the the books for these classes? They can't put it all in one. So they have to use several textbooks. So just imagine, you know, three or four giant textbooks stacked up. And so what we have pulled is the medications that are in the PDR that you can acquire because what we do is talk about disasters, austere situations, and prepping, exactly, and prepping for situations where your doctor is not available. So there's no sense in talking about a medication you can never get. Right, so not a lot of IV antibiotics. Exactly. Every once in a while we'll mention something just for your information that might might not be attainable, but it's just sort of a, a tip and a, a, just a, a, an important piece of knowledge that you should know. So we pull that information from the PDR. What you can probably buy now, and we've checked all of these, currently at this very moment they're all available. We had to remove a couple of them because yep. tetracycline is not available anymore as a fish med. Yeah, it used to be fish cycling now no longer available. Yes, not available. So we actually deleted that from the book. So we don't talk about tetracycline. Only things you can right. get. Exactly. And then, so, so that's what we pulled from the PDR. So we talk about side effects, interactions, and common dosages 
four diseases. Now let's go to the disease in, infectious disease books. What we pulled from there is what those medications that you can get can take care of. Right, and, and we also what's, those. what's common now, and we have medications that you can treat it, and also what might become common in if, a disaster. Right, if you're off the grid long term, what will be things that will come back that used to be problems so that aren't problems anymore? Maybe we end up with some malaria around right. here. Right, exactly. You know, sure, that, there used to be malaria. I remember we were in know. New Orleans a while ago, and uh, uh, all the history there revolves around epidemics of yellow fever, malaria, and right. things like that, some of them which took out you know, percentages of the population. Which is so, not something we typically think about in this country now is problems with malaria. However, I actually have my oldest daughter is traveling to Thailand. I, she's just going on an adventure with a friend. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, she just wrote to me that she's like, Mom, what do I need to do? And I, I said, you need to get some vaccinations mm. and you need to get some uh, prophylaxis medication for malaria. And so yeah, I said, you true. need to go see a doctor because before you travel there, and I said, you cannot be bitten by a mosquito. I, I just said, you can't, 100% cannot be bitten by a mosquito. They are long-term horrible diseases. This is how I am. Not right. like, go have fun, don't worry about a thing. I'm saying, don't get bitten by a single mosquito, you'll have a horrible disease. In other words, use a lot of uh, pesta, what? DEET. In, Insect D-E-T, repellent. Insect repellent. Whatever. I don't Off. care. I don't care. Whatever she they let you bring in. Wraps yourself in plastic so she doesn't get bitten by yeah. a mosquito. Whatever you have to do. Yep. Yeah. This is the kind of mom I am. The both of them, both of my daughters have been to Japan. So okay, watch out for World this travelers. and watch out Boy. for that. And you got to be careful of the food and watch. Wait, watch where you're eating. Is it reputable? Are they actually anyway? All right. You're eating so a live, anyway, live octopus. So getting back to the book. The infectious diseases that you can treat with the medications you can purchase today. A lot of common ones now and ones that, as you've mentioned, will be common in situations where we're off the grid. That's right. So. Thank you for your summary. Thank you so much. Doctor. It's been fun, though, guys. We're, We're actually enjoying doing this. Now we have to do the pictures. Right. The book is written. Yep. The book is actually written, folks. Um, and now we're just trying to find Add illustrations awesome that, pictures and illustrations to, that's right. you know, kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about. That's right. Exactly. And Working we are, hard. We are excited about it. So, oh, so excited. So while you're getting prepared this National Preparedness Month, think about getting our book when it comes out and some of the antibiotics that we mentioned in there. You might prevent some really bad outcomes if you have this stuff on hand. And believe me, if you do, you'll be glad you did one day if something ever really happens. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about infrastructure. You know, when our infrastructure is working, we're able to produce all sorts of things that are necessary to keep us healthy, like clean water, uh, food that's properly prepared, safe to eat, things like that. We also have ways to easily flush human waste away from our immediate surroundings. That's a great thing because you want to have that as far away from you as you possibly can. If you've got sewers, you got a septic tank, then you are doing great. And that is one good way to keep healthy by 
keeping the human waste disposed of in a safe fashion. When infrastructure is damaged, though, and when there is some kind of disaster that takes away that infrastructure, boy, we are going to be very easy prey for infectious diseases. When that happens, I mean, all you have to do is look back at, well, let's see, well, oh, how about the Haitian earthquake? Oh, in 2010, yeah. there was a big earthquake in Haiti, and mm-hmm. there was a huge cholera epidemic <clears throat> that occurred afterwards. It killed a lot of people, and that's something that is even treatable these days, uh, but they just didn't have the materials that they needed to be able to intravenously feed people with fluids, the thousands, tens of thousands of people that wound up needing it. It was just really horrible. So... I'll tell you, there are a lot of people that are interested in being prepared for disaster. There are a lot of preppers like you and and like us. Uh, But very few of the folks that are interested in in bushcraft and and prepping have really given a lot of thought as to how they're going to maintain a a truly sanitary environment for their family if something really happened in, in times of trouble. And this, I have to tell you, is always surprises me because there's daily news reports of hundreds or even thousands of deaths due to poor conditions in a lot of underdeveloped countries. If you go to the CDC website or the World Health Organization website, you'll hear that, you know, 50,000 people died of malaria in this area in the last six months or or 100,000 people died of this disease or that disease. I mean, just really horrible things. And almost all of it is related to bad water, poorly cooked food, And, of course, human waste that is not properly disposed of. Now, it seems so simple now, but the truth of the matter is is that our wastewater and uh, solid waste goes to these waste treatment plants. Right. We have specialized systems currently that we're all used to. Right. And infrastructure. Yeah. We're used to just walking into a toilet, shutting a door, having fresh water, which really is potable water. We're using potable water to flush our toilets, and it goes away with either a push of a button or pushing down a handle, and it just disappears it would into be, somewhere else. Right. A couple of hundred years ago, if you told somebody that you were going to be, you could do that, they would think it was magic. If <laughs> right. we, I mentioned to, to George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, hey, this is what's going to happen with excrement in the future. In our cities, we'll have these systems underground. They carry our waste away to special treatment plants, and we don't ever have to worry about doing anything to it. They probably put us in jail for, or no, no, not in jail. Not house <laughs> over there. Well, okay, so. Things will change is the point. And things could change if there is indeed some kind of major disaster. If you yes. have some kind of long-term disaster that occurs, electrical power loses for any significant amount of time due to a storm or other disaster, sometimes water utilities just can't operate the pumps that maintain water pressure in the pipes that go all the way to your home. And this pressure is one way that water utilities ensure that your water is free from harmful bacteria. When the pressure is lost, you usually will hear, this is why it's great to have a, a NOAA weather radio, because oh, yeah. they will issue, the authorities will issue a boil water order, and that is something that is pretty important to know when those things come out. I mean, we've learned harsh lessons as a result of a lot of disasters 
that led to the outfitting of waste treatment centers. They now have generators, and generator power is helpful, but only while you have fuel, of course. So we have to realize that human sewage is going to be a big problem, not only in the aftermath of a storm, but also in a long-term disaster. If the water isn't running, if the human waste is not being disposed of, the community that is not prepared is going to have a nightmare on their hands, and you will have a nightmare on your hands in as little as a few days. There are a lot of examples of this, by the way, from the recent past, and in the grand majority of them, people were just clueless as to how even how how a flush toilet even works. <laughs> true. I mean, it's true. A lot of people don't know. After filling whatever porcelain options that these people had porcelain options that's right that's right Uh, these people proceeded to just pick rooms where they could relieve themselves and sort of designate it as a big toilet and as a result of course their homes were pretty uninhabitable in less than a week Uh, i'm not going to accuse any of you of that plan of action to eliminate human waste in a disaster but here's how a flush toilet at least one type actually works Now, a flush toilet uses water to send human waste through a drain pipe to another location. The toilet bowl usually has a ring-shaped seat on top, which is covered by the lid when not in use. We become so used to the shape of a toilet seat that even off-grid toilets like those five-gallon buckets uh, called luggable loos have a seat that goes on the bucket, looks just like a standard toilet seat. What about when we travel? And when, to other countries. Do you remember yes. Amsterdam? Oh, yes. Do you remember the toilets that were just in the middle of the sidewalks? Yes, that's with, right. With hardly anything covered, any kind of right. screen or, or I think they were covering. mostly urinals. Could you actually uh, evacuate your bowels in them? I think I it was, there were urinals. don't think so. But, but I'll tell you one thing. That it was just a hole in the ground, basically. In, holes in, in the ground. Right. In some places in Italy, in, in the rural areas... Their public bathrooms were essentially a hole in the yes, ground. Yes, they were. And you straddled that hole. There's not a seat as or anything like that. Could, as best you could. As best you can. And in. things go through the hole. And there was not always toilet paper right. either. Exactly. Well, there, I don't remember. They had, you had to sort of bring your toilet some, paper with you. There were some that had like, just like some water system. And you right. had to figure out how to turn that water on to clean yourself. Exactly. And it's, and it's you, a lo- learning experience pretty much in every different country. And that's in Western Europe. That we're not yeah, talking no. about, you know, deepest darkest Afri- Africa or anything like that. It's just what they do. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. Well, anyhow, once you have made your um, deposit, there you go to the toilet. <laughs> a, a handle is pressed to flush it, and the water used for flushing way. is stored. In, the water used for flushing is stored in a tank. In, in back, it's uh, most people call it the tank, but it used to be called the cistern. And yeah, like cisterns that you use to collect mm-hmm. rainwater. The, the toilet has an inlet valve that's in charge of controlling the amount of water that goes into this tank or cistern. And this valve lets water in when the tank is empty and stops water coming in when the tank is full. And the way that works is that you have something called a float ball or some other floating part that as the water goes in, This is in the tank, and it rises as the tank fills with water. And when the tank fills to a certain point, the water uh, rises, uh, and and also the float float rises, and a rod attached to it presses against the inlet valve hard enough to cover it and turn the water off, or somehow otherwise turn the water off. So that prevents an overflow in, in the tank. In the meantime, 
there's a lid called a flapper or some other colorful name that they give it <laughs> that, that prevents water from coming in from draining uh, that the water that, that's coming in from draining out until you press the handle and when you press the handle a lever inside the tank pulls the flapper up forcing some water through a siphon this provides suction in the siphon and the rest of the water follows and that empties the tank the flapper then drops back into position allowing the tank to fill up again raising the float ball or other floating apparatus until it's full again and and it goes on and on the tank empties very quickly by the way and the float ball floats to the bottom and that means the float rod is no longer pressing up against the valve so water starts to flow back into the tank now the water that left the tank goes through a short pipe into the toilet bowl and it sloshes around the rim down the sides of the bowl and out through the drain pipe cleaning the bowl and carrying the waste along with it now why is there some water left in the bowl after all this you would think that would be a it would empty it completely exactly but that's because modern toilets have a bend in them sometimes shaped like an s sometimes not which remains filled with water in between flushes and the water in the S bend, if it's shaped like an S or whatever bend, it stops bad number one bad odors from escaping from the drain pipe. But also during flushing, the S bend also provides extra suction action, which helps speed up the flushing process. So the flush cleans the boil, uh, the bowl of the toilet, and under the rim where it's difficult to clean, it, it's helpful for that too. It carries waste matter to a drain and the waste matter is then taken to a treatment plant or your septic tank. And that's all well and good, but what's the deal when a disaster ends this little miracle of modern engineering? Well, here's where some simple planning pays off. If you have have access to water, even water unfit to drink, you can have a working toilet by filling the cistern with water before flushing or by pouring it, uh, I would say a couple of gallons at least, directly into the toilet bowl. And that's gonna trigger the siphoning action of the plumbing and send your uh, deposit on its way. <laughs> and, and this works, by the way, also with septic tanks. Maybe not forever, but it would work for a good amount of time. Now, if you have municipal sewer lines, you have a line called a lateral line that goes from your home to the sewer main. In a disaster, it's good to know if the sewer main is down. If the main line is functioning, you can use the processes we still talk about. If it's not, well, there's not. there may be some backflow. I mean, if the sewer main is down or blocked. So if you have backflow, there are indeed in your home backflow prevention valves that that you may have already installed. You don't know uh, un, unless you check, but you check and see if, you're ba- if you have these backflow prevention valves. If you don't have them, you can actually get them installed. So what if you have no water whatsoever to spare to, to flush the toilet? Well, if you're in your home, you can empty your toilet. Well as much as you possibly can, then place two layers of garbage bags, the sturdier the better, as you can imagine, inside the toilet bowl and lower the lid to hold them in place. Have some sand or bleach solution nearby to pour over the waste as you use it, and that will help deodorize it. Now, if you're a cat person, you probably have a head start. You probably stored away some (laughs) kitty litter. Kitty litter would work just great. Otherwise, consider some of the commercially produced powders that are on the market uh, after several uses, it's going to be clear that it's time to dispose of the waste. And, well, it's already conveniently bagged. Bingo. 
So it might be, I'll tell you, it might be even wiser to move this bodily function outdoors. You know, remember, that's what our ancestors did. Remember outhouses? Well, here's where a five-gallon bucket from Home Depot or Lowe's comes in handy. Line it with the same two garbage bags. Um, these are, by the way, essential items to store in quantity. They have a lot of uses. And, and place your toilet seat, your luggable loo, or a couple of short lengths of uh, two-by-fours uh, on top of it, and, you, well, you're good to, as they say, go. And <laughs> you can use sand, dirt, kitty litter, or even quicklime, along with some bleach solution until the bag is about half full or so, and then you can get rid of it. Now, if you can afford them, by the way, there are indeed self-composting toilets that are manufactured specifically for power-down situations, and these things are, are awesome. They work pretty well, but, of course, there is a certain cost involved, and you know, if you don't have them already, then you're obviously not going to get them in, in the midst of a long-term disaster. Of course, there's the outdoor latrine for either individual or community use. Now, for those people that are on the move, well, a single hole that's dug when the need arises will work if you cover it effectively and some important rules are followed. We'll talk about that in a second. For the long term, though, you will want to dig what's called a trench latrine. A trench latrine is basically just that. It's a trench dedicated to waste that can be utilized, well, multiple times. The dimensions of the latrine will depend on the length of time it's going to be needed and the number of people in your group. For a small group, let's say, you can make it about 18 inches wide, about 24 inches deep, and several feet long. If you've got a lot of people, well, you want a longer trench and maybe some kind of partition sheet for privacy if your group is big enough to have more than one person utilizing it at a time. Of course, well, privacy, I don't know, that... While you're going, it may be the least of your concerns if you're at the point where you have to dig a community latrine. No, I honestly think that as shy as we all are about these kind of situations, there are tons of people out there who won't even go <clears throat> excuse me, to public bathrooms. Yes. They will hold it until they get home. Yes. It's hard to hard to believe that one day these people may be all going oh to the gosh. bathroom together. You, you know, in ancient oh. Rome... In ancient Rome, they have actually in the Colosseum a and a number of other event. things. It was apparently some kind of social event. They all the all the toilets were basically holes in in stone oh that were all in a row, like a dozen in a row, and people would just sort of sit there. They used a uh, sponge on a stick to wipe themselves. Yes, and, yeah, I remember, remember? seeing yeah. that. Yeah, it, it was pretty amazing. And it was a community kind of deal, and who knows, it might be like that again. Oh, boy. So anyhow, so you have your latrine, so you've dug out uh, 18 inches wide, 24 inches deep at least, at least several feet long, maybe longer depending on the number of people involved. And what you want to do is you want to keep the dirt left over from digging the trench in a pile next to the trench with a latrine, uh, with a, a shovel. And you want to make sure that you cover up the waste with each use. So that dirt that's there is very useful to just simply cover up the uh, bowel movements and, and all the human waste after each use. Now, a main concern about any latrine or waste deposited in a hole, of course, is contamination of the local water supply. Right. So you have to follow some disposal rules pretty darn diligently. And Number one, never place a latrine anywhere near your water supply. At least 200 feet away is best. Uh, disperse any single holes. 
uh, that you may wind up use, using over as wide an area as possible. Again, at least 200 feet away from water. And obviously, well, I think a lot of people that are using this are on the move, so that may not be a big issue. But if, if you insist on digging single holes, not putting, putting together a latrine, that's what you've got to do. Uh, don't place latrines anywhere near where rainwater runoff occurs. That's going to be very important. Now, don't place latrines near food preparation or eating areas and avoid digging single-use holes where other people are likely to be walking. Uh, you want to dig holes in raised areas. If possible, they are going to be less likely to cause leaching into the water sources. And you want to consider areas that are indeed in sunlight, which heats up the soil and that speeds up decomposition. And finally, always be certain to wash your hands as much as possible in any survival situation, whether it's certainly after visiting the latrine, but really just as often as you possibly can. We rarely pay enough attention to hand hygiene, and boy, we pay the penalty for this by getting all sorts of illnesses, even in normal times. Right. And we talk about a lot, a lot of those in our upcoming book. But the important thing is that it's going to be just as bad, or actually probably much worse, in survival settings and austere settings, remote locations. So you remember a lot of these germs do stay alive on your hands for hours and you just have to decide whether you're really concerned about a true disaster happening. So that's something that I think you really got to think about. It's not a pleasant thing to think about, but for those guys that you know are just loading up on, on guns and ammunition and fire starters and, and things like that, you got to think about sanitation as well it's not as sexy as <laughs> as all the other stuff but man you got to think about I it would say. how come we don't talk about sexy stuff uh, <laughs> i know isn't that terrible i don't th- well no isn't that horrible it's just not possible well me- medicine <laughs> is just medicine yeah it is and when you do talk about sexy parts we talk about them in words that aren't sexy yes you know, anatomical <laughs> parts in yes. medical language is not really sexy language. <laughs> it's so true. Well, we want to talk a little bit more since we're on the issue of uh, people having problems with infections due to all sorts of sanitation issues and things like that. Well, infectious diseases are going to be part and parcel of the human experience. After a disaster, they are part and parcel of the human experience. Now, And ever since the Middle Ages, we've known that a lot of infections have the capacity of passing from person to person. Therefore, what do you need to help protect yourself from becoming the next victim of, let's say, an epidemic that comes to your town? Of course, you need gloves, but you also need masks. And having a good supply of masks makes a lot of sense from a survival standpoint because there are going to be just a few medically trained individuals to serve a group or community and if you're listening to this show you might just be that person that's right and they have to realize that the medic is a valuable resource and loss of a medic to illness would be a calamity to not just their family but to everyone who depends on them for uh, uh, staying healthy even before we knew there were such things as viruses and bacteria well we had all sorts of efforts to protect our healthcare providers, and it was made by the use of masks. Uh, you probably have seen uh, 
images of plague doctors and these plague doctors oh, would yeah. they had these wear these weirdo masks look like birds yes look like, like bird beaks. big giant beaks well those know... beaks the reason why those Wait, beaks were there how big were they they were they were the size of what what bird maybe like a pelican without yeah. the pouch underneath right that long and and that yeah, big. it was pretty long or, or a raven or you know something some big beak bird yeah sometimes it was curved right, right? exactly curved to it and what they did with it is they used to put herbs that they thought were cleansing herbs or would protect them For, yeah, some sort in of this protection. in that almost like beak. a spell yeah. i think it was sort of like a talisman yeah, yes exactly yeah, like uh, these herbs will protect me because they have special protection they didn't think about oh gee th- this might kill the germs that are trying to get into my respiratory system they weren't going that far with their um well, Analy- they just didn't analyzing. know. Analyzing. They didn't know. They, they didn't, didn't know. understand they... germ theory. Right. Microscopes weren't even around until the late 1600s or early 1700s. They weren't even considered for 100 years afterwards right. to be more than a curiosity. But the interesting thing is, somehow they kind of figured out some antiseptic type herbs. Yes. They have, that, there were herbs that, that they thought prevent That might actually have infection. worked. Yes. Exactly right. So what they were doing might have been the most effective thing at the time right. that they could think about. Like garlic and things like that most likely yeah. were, were, was part of what they did. There were some flowers that they thought were Very interesting. also, uh, they almost had like a potpourri in, exactly, in, the, in, a their, potpourri, in right. the beak part of the mask. Right. Well, anyhow, around the year 1900, as late as 1900, they started using masks routinely during surgery. I mean, you see... If you look just before 1900, let's say during the Civil War, Mm -hmm. you see that all these doctors that were doing all these crazy amputations and terrible things on the battlefield, they weren't wearing masks and they weren't wearing gloves. So it really took to about the year 1900 where we understood infectious disease enough that we wanted to start using masks routinely during, let's say, surgical procedures to prevent all these microbes from contaminating the operative field and protecting our caregivers, our, our surgeons and our other people that were um, exposed to blood splatter and other infectious type fluids. Now, the basic surgical mask really hasn't changed, interestingly enough, much in general appearance in the last century. That, that before they were made of cloth, but uh, in these era, this era, we actually make them out of this melt-blown kind of fabric that is uh, just simpler. I think it's sort of a, mel- a meld of plastic well, and I, paper. I think this was the only way to get um, the fibers, the material, close enough to each other. Because if you look very closely at a, a cotton sheet, there are woven fibers, but they're so far apart. That you could easily see microbes going through them. Exactly. So I think the only way, I mean, and that's a natural material, the only way to, to make these filters, the a real barrier, filters, right. an actual barrier to prevent, you know, pretty much anything flying through there except for large dust bunnies, uh, was to make it man-made. I think exactly. that's the only way that they, they can figure it out. And it's actually kind of a miracle because of these things you're going to talk about, if filtering, and yet you could still breathe. Think about that. Yes. You can still breathe, but not breathe in things that are so incredibly 
Tiny. Tiny. Right. Tiny is almost too big of a word. It, microscopic. Right. Even <laughs> super microscopic. Super microscopic. Right, there you go. It's it's really amazing. So of course, since then they've become very very popular. Of course, everybody uses them in the U.S. in hospitals and and a lot of clinics and things like that. But of course, in Asia, it's even more popular. Anybody who feels like they are getting a little sick or concerned about people in their area getting a little sick, you see just dozens of people or hundreds of people walking around with uh, face masks. Right. And as a matter of fact, it's so much so that it's considered a a sign of social responsibility to wear a face mask if you have a cold or flu and you're going out in public. Yep. Face masks, by the way, have the added advantage of reminding people to keep their hands away from their nose and mouth. My gosh, so many people absentmindedly touch their faces with fingers that are it's contaminated hot, right. with viruses and bacteria and stuff like that. They, they do that repeatedly over the course of the day. All you have to do is just watch somebody for a half hour and you'll see that they do it several, several times. And, of course, that's a major cause of the spread of infectious diseases. So you want to have a good supply of masks. That's very important to stockpile in your medical storage. And without these items, well, an infectious disease could affect your entire family or group. Uh, medical masks are based upon their uh, ability to serve as a barrier to very small particles. And when I say particles, I mean you were talking about how small they are. Fractions of microns. Right. Wow. And if you look at a the diameter of a human hair and you look at a micron, a micron is a dot in... if, if if you cut a human hair in cross section, you'd have a circle. Right. You like a put disc, a dot, like in, a disc or like a plate. It would look right. like a plate. If you put a P on that plate, well, that would be a micron. That is so clever. Or, or even smaller. I know, right? So, <laughs> so wow. <laughs> that, Just, we're gonna say, for instance, not exactly. <laughs> but so anyhow, these are incredible. are are tested uh, at a flow rate that approximates human breathing. Coughing and sneezing, and so that's how they test them. They they have air blow through them, or try to blow air through them. That approximates just normal breathing, and then coughing, and then sneezing. And masks are also tested, by the way, for their ability to fit the average human face and tightly fit that average face. Tightly, but ag again, allow them to breathe. But allow them to breathe. You're absolutely it's right. It's insane. Now, the most commonly available face masks use ear loops or ties to just fix them in place. But there are a lot of higher quality masks that are uh, fabricated out of this melt-blown fabric I was talking about that provide better protection. And uh, I, I have to say that all medical masks are not created equal. They have a wide range of protection. They're based on fit. A tight fit is imperative to providing a barrier to infectious droplets. And the mask thickness is also a factor. There are three-ply and six-ply. Three-ply masks are the most common version. They're much more breathable. If you had a mask that was six-ply, well, they prevent, present more of a barrier. They're harder to breathe right, through. Right, exactly. There you go. Uh, now, the upgrade to your basic surgical mask that you can buy in quantity is the N95 respirator mask. And an N95 medical mask is a class of disposable respirator uh, that is impermeable to at least 95% of particulates that are greater than 0 0.3 microns in size. It's less than one micron, and it gets 95% of them. And this, these masks protect against so many contaminants. It's amazing. They're relatively inexpensive. 
compared to masks that are 100% protective. There right. are indeed N100 masks or N99 masks. They are also available, but there's a big difference in, in the price. Uh, the N in N95 stands for non-oil resistance. There are indeed oil-resistant 95 masks. They're called R95s, and they're oil-proof masks, P95 masks, but those R95s and P95 masks are mostly for industrial or agricultural use, so they're not really meant for the most part uh, simply for uh, medical medical use. Uh, there, I guess there's a lot of agricultural dust or industrial dust can be very dangerous and could be even smaller than your average bug. Yes. I would guess. <laughs> For sure. Now, a lot of these masks have a, a little exhalation val valve in the middle, especially the thicker ones. They're, that's usually sort of square or round, and that helps with breathability. Uh, none of these masks cover the eyes unless they have a built-in face shield. And in, if you're dealing just with normal routine uh, colds and things like that, you probably don't need that. But if you're dealing with, let's say, Ebola or something like that, you absolutely would want to have a face shield that was either attached to the mask or a separate item that you put over your head and just covers your entire face. Uh, so that's the thing. And as a result, most regular masks, even normal N95 masks, won't prevent splatter from getting in your eyes. So if there is a situation where blood splatter or air droplets going in your eye is going to be extremely dangerous, as in Ebola, well, that's something that you would actually need. In, in even worse situations where there are toxic gases associated with all this, then you need an actual gas mask. And we were actually surprised, I think, one Christmas with uh, our children oh, yes. giving us gas masks. <laughs> that, that was funny. That was pretty amazing. We still have them somewhere <laughs> in, our, in our preps, in our uh, mystical warehouse oh of preps. Gosh. And um, we thank, thank our kids for that. But um, in general, you, you would have to, it would have to be toxic gases where, or bioterror agents before you would consider using things like that. And if you have our book, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not in the Way, we have actually a section on biological warfare and it talks a little bit about that. Uh, the most reasonable strategy with face masks is to have lots of them, both standard ear loop masks and, and N95 masks. You, you probably would put the standard ear loop masks on your sick patients, people that are, are coughing, and you want want to at least stop the majority of the cough from uh, of air droplets from getting into the air, and you, the medic, would then use the N95 masks that uh, while you're caring for the patient. That would be a typical way to deal with, let's say, an epidemic sick room. You would want to have face masks, if possible, on your people that are sick, and you would want the N95 masks on you so that there are but i have to say there are no absolute standards with regards to who wears what in the sick room i don't have anything that i can point at as saying that that's the way it has to be but that's what we would recommend that's if right. you want to have the best chance of staying healthy in the midst of an epidemic so this some this is something that is very very important uh, let's see. Gosh, we don't have a lot of time left. I'm at 51 minutes already. So I just want to talk a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about uh, 
uh, food and water contamination. Very simple. We've talked about this before. That, uh, and I wanted to talk a little bit about appropriate cooking. Uh, you you want to prepare your food in a in an appropriate fashion. To do that, you have to have some way to determine what temperature you're cooking things at. Yes. And so you Without should an have oven. What? Right. Exactly. <laughs> what you am I supposed to do? Are you have a meat crazy? thermometer? Have a meat thermometer is what I say. As I part love of, it. You as know part when of I your use supplies. My, absolutely. You know when I use my meat thermometer? What? Christmas Eve. Oh yes. Oh for yeah. The I've seen it a million times. For yes. the turkey. Absolutely. Well, so turkey. Let's see. Poultry, 165 degrees. That's yes, what you I knew where that. you want it. That's where I you knew want. That. Uh, other things <laughs> like ground. Uh, like beef is 145 degrees, pork is 150 degrees, lamb 160. I'm not sure how they come up with these exact numbers, but mm -hmm. that's it. By the way, soups with meat, they're 165 degrees. Sauces and, gra and gravy that have meat, 165 degrees also. Fish, 145 degrees. Uh, ground beef, they actually say 160. So between you and I, I don't know the... Really, that there's a big difference between 160 and 165. So go, go one for 165. Yes, there you go. That's my exact question or uh, comment. Absolutely. 165. And so between you and I, that is the most important thing. Always make sure that you completely cook. Not only you cook at a right temperature, but that everything is cooked. Okay, so they, you know, if you're cooking over a, a campfire, it's hard to be sure that everything is evenly cooked. Make sure you do the very best you can to cook things thoroughly and evenly. If you can do that, then you'll go a long way to keeping your people healthy in times of trouble. Looks like we're almost out of time. Thanks for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll be back next week. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Thank you.